is nearing the end of his life, and he is writing to his dear friend Timothy, helping to set his course and the course of his church, which are both developing in a city that is not helpful to that end. A city that is predominantly void of Christ and His Gospel. Titus 2.14 says, "...who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works." As Christians, it says that one of the reasons that God has saved us is He has saved us for and in order to be zealous for good works. And there are lots of good works. There are a lot of things that you can do with your life that are good and pleasing to God. But God, through His Holy Spirit, will impress on some of you uh, uh, an intense passion for a specific good work that you'll be zealous for. I say that because today's passage, uh, my prayer as a pastor is that I think this can be the kind of sermon and the kind of text that God can use to impassion His people for specific good works. And so my prayer is that God will do something in our church through this sermon, that He will lay something on some of you, that He would lay something heavy on your hearts that you'll carry out. We're going to go through 16 verses today, which if you've been coming to Veritas for a while, you know that's a big chunk. We usually do three to five, and that takes about an hour, so do the math. (laughs) We'll do the sermon, and then we'll have dinner together, (laughs) put our pajamas on, and (laughs) let's pray. You need a Bible. If you've got a Bible around you, it's page 852, that white Bible, and you're welcome to take that with you if you you don't own one, but we're going to need the Holy Spirit's help to... Read God's Word. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful that you've gathered us, your people, together today and that you mean to be glorified in us. And thank you for giving us air to breathe, legs to walk, arms to move, eyes to see, ears to hear. We ask that you would use everything that you've given us, all your gracious gifts to us for your glory today. In the next hour or so, as we together sit under your holy word, we ask that you would raise up your Holy Spirit and that he would wield this sword in a powerful way, that he would cut through to the depths of who we are That there would be, for some of us, conviction of sin. There would be others' encouragement in our despair. And in all this, we would see you as good and glorious and praise you. God, you know that we've come in here um, divided. You know that we have things on our mind and things on our hearts. You know that we're distracted. You know that there are many things that our great enemy could use to be a stumbling block today, to be an obstacle to us hearing your truth. So we ask that you would, uh, you would hold back all those distractions. God, that you would cause us to be laser-focused on your word today. 
but that we wouldn't hear it just as words, but that we would hear it as what it is, the words of you. And therefore, the most important words that we could ever hear, more important words than the wisest of men, is your God. So we ask that you would be glorified in your saints today as we come before you as hungry beggars looking for crumbs from your table through the preaching of your holy word. We pray these things in the great name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So if you would, open your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 5. And skim down to verse 7. And you see Paul say this familiar phrase, Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. Here's this phrase over and over again. Paul is talking about to Timothy, these things. Pass along these things. Put these things before the brothers and sisters. Entrust these things before faithful men and women. Pass this on. This is the role of a pastor. Okay? He should be in his study during the week. And hopefully God, by His Holy Spirit, is passing truth along to the pastor so that the pastor can pass truth on to His people. And this is how God means to sanctify His people, to grow His people, to make His people more like Jesus. So Paul keeps charging Timothy, these things that I'm teaching you. In other words, we can look at these things. Verses 1-6, through 6, right before when he says, command these things. Then the following, verses 8 through 16, and as well as all the things that Paul is passing on to him. Timothy, take this, pass it on to your people, so that they may live lives that are above reproach. Paul says, I want these people in your church to live well. And in order for them to live well, you've got to give them truth. You've got to give them God's Word. You have to pass these things on. This is God's goal for your life as a Christian. His goal for you as a Christian is that you would be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. You ever wonder why God doesn't just save people and then beam them up to heaven? Okay, done. No more life. No more heartache. But no, God leaves us here. Some of us for short periods of time. Some of you for long periods of time. And He leaves you here because He means to, over time, to gradually, not as quickly as you or I would like, but to gradually make you more like Jesus. The Scriptures say to conform you into the image of His Son. That you would live lives that are above reproach. Holy lives. Righteous lives. Lives that are obeying God and serving Him and following Him. Well, the way that happens, the primary way that happens is through the teaching of God's Word. You never see God's Word and God's Holy Spirit separated. They are together. God's Holy Spirit, God's Holy Word, God's Bible is the sword of the Holy Spirit. And so he brings this through the preaching of his word and he cuts us deeply so that we may live lives that are above reproach. So that's my agenda. That should be your agenda, Christian, is to hear God's word. Not to, not to pass God's word through our filters. Right? Our, our filters that make God's word say things that we don't 
make them say things that we want to hear. These filters that we put up where we make God's Word say things that God's Word doesn't say. When we do that, when we put those filters up, surprise, God's Word always says what we want it to say. It never convicts us of sin. It never wipes us out. It never leaves us going home like we prayed in the Puritan prayer to start our worship service. It never leaves us going home saying, I am a vile creature. We hear something totally different, something that we've made up. And we leave saying, I am a wonder of creation. Why wouldn't God love me? Why wouldn't God want to give me great gifts? I mean, look at me. Look at me. And he sees my heart, and the deeper you go with me, the better it gets. But the truth is, the deeper you go, the worse it gets. And we're vile before God. So that's a clue. If you're constantly reading God's Word, it's never pricking your conscience. And you're one of those Christians who has arrived. You're deluded. Command these things as well, Timothy, so that your people may live lives that are above reproach. So let's look at what he's saying specifically in this context. What is he commanding? Verses 1 through 6, and then verses 9 through 16. Let's start just verse 1 and 2. Do not, Paul says, rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger men... Sorry. I was trying to double dip there and get two younger men's. Younger women as sisters in all purity. Etiquette. God puts forth church, family, etiquette. There is, we find in God's Word, there is a a biblical code of God-honoring behavior within the church. And Paul in these two verses gives some very general guidelines. Okay, there are two people that you're going to interact with in the church. Those who are older than you and those who are younger than you. And that covers everybody. And whether they're older or younger, there are certain ways that you are to relate to them. In other words, tone is very important in fellowship and in ministry. Tone is very important. And if you say things like, oh, well, we're all a part of God's family, young and old, it doesn't matter... I should talk to this person the way I should talk to this person, and I can talk to that person the way I can talk to that person. And God actually says, no. There are some rules in your fellowship with one another, how you should treat each other, and in your ministering to one another. Tone is an important thing. So this is convicting for those of you who live and speak like this. Well, it's, it's my way or the highway. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just say what I'm going to say. This is how God made me. Okay, this is my personality. Okay, and you, you can take it or, and then this very gracious option we give people. <laughs> right, you can take it or you can, can leave it. But I'm going to... And so there's people who are, they're direct. Direct is a good thing. Okay, they're not passive. Passivity is not a good thing. But then they take that and use that and abuse that and think that there are no rules for how you talk to certain people. When the truth is, 
our tone and our tact with one another is something for us to pay attention to. And we don't just get to go up to other Christians and say, well, you know what? This is how God made me. This is my personality. And you can just take it or leave it. Christians don't get to talk that way. He lays down some ground rules. First, he says, treat older men as fathers and younger men as brothers. Treat older men as fathers and younger men as brothers. There is a way that older men in the church should be spoken to. And it's not the way you speak to younger men. There is honor and respect that should come in our interaction and our tone with those who are older in the church. Have you ever had to confront somebody who's an older man? It's very different. It should be different. It should feel different than just talking to your your buddy over here. When you're going to someone who is older, has lived a lot longer than you, there's a different way you should approach that person. When you approach them, there should be a degree of honor and respect in your tone. Hey, you treat the younger men as brothers. So, you may not come in and with the older men in our church, you may not just come in and smack them on the back. You may not come in and just say, you know, how about a fist bump, pops? You may not call them the kinds of names and phrases that you would call one of your buddies. You're going to interact differently because you want to show respect. Because God's Word says you should show respect. And you treat your younger men as brothers. Okay, so I, you know, I have four little boys, and so each one of them has three brothers. So the brotherly interaction they get. Okay, you should treat each other as brothers. Now, sometimes that's a good example that comes from how they treat one another, and sometimes there's a bad example of how they treat one another. But if the way they treat one another as brothers is loving because they're brothers and kind because they're brothers, then that should be the way that they treat other men, other peers in the church. As well, it goes both ways. You will see that brothers should be able to and often do say anything to one another. They're typically not worried about how things they're going to say to one another are going to sound. They're going to be direct. And they're not going to typically walk on eggshells around each other. So too, young men who are interacting in the church should be able to talk to each other that way. If you're going to an older man, there should be a level of honor and respect. If you're talking to a peer, you're going to be able to talk to him in a different way. And you might be more frank. And you might have a different tone about you. And it's the responsibility of each of you not to be too, because this happens in the church a lot, too sensitive to one another. He's going to talk to you like a loving and trusted brother. So tell me what's on your mind. Tell me what's on your heart. You don't need to pay me six compliments before you tell me. You don't have to use a bunch of flowery language. You don't have to trip over your words. Just talk to me brother to brother. What's the problem? And let's work it out. Right? That's how brothers should interact with each other. But older men is different. And then he goes on and says the same for older women. Treat older women as mothers. As mothers. So it's not just you treat your father this way. You just treat your mother this way. 
You look in your church, and by God's grace, God will bring older men and older women into your church. We were worried about that for a while here at Veritas. Right? We had like three people that were over, you know, 18 when we started. That's what it felt like. And the rest of us, it just, we just felt like you know, we were really this young church. And our prayer was that we become a more accurate representation of God's family. Because in God's family, right, you're going to have grandmas and grandpas, moms and dads, sons and daughters, and you're going to have grandkids. And you're going to have this kind of interaction in the family. So you don't just treat your father this way. You treat all the older men this way. You don't just treat your mother this way. You treat all the older women this way. Older people must be treated with a certain degree of affection and respect in God's church. Think of it this way. Older people in your church, in our church, here at Veritas, older people do not have to earn our respect. They don't come in and start at ground zero and, okay, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to make sure that you're respectable and make sure that you're honorable. No, that's not biblical thinking. Biblical thinking is, no, you don't have to earn our honor and respect. You are, you are honorable until proven dishonorable. Okay, the tone may change, but you are honorable until proven dishonorable. There's a degree of affection and respect that is going to come to older people in a church. Older men, younger men, older women, and then treat younger women as sisters in all purity. How do we treat younger women in Christ's church? Men, you're to treat them as Sisters, in all purity. This is new in our family. We have a little sister. And nine months ago, we didn't have a little sister. It was just little brothers. Now we got this girl in our little, little tiny girl who is just so different. I mean, she looks different. She smells different. She sounds different. Feels different. I mean, she's just different. And God has created her as a little girl to be glorified in her. She's created in His image. He's created my boys very different. Also created in God's image, but very different, reflecting His glory in totally, totally different ways. Like we see the wrath of God in our boys. And we see the beauty of God in Avery. But our boys, you know, when we're now teaching them that you, you treat your sister differently than you treat your brothers. See, this is, this is what Paul is talking about. That's why he's using this analogy. You treat your sister differently than you treat your brothers. You're upset with your brother, angry with your brother. I, I know there's ways that you think appropriate, and sometimes they are, that you can, you can settle things. And we allow them quite a bit of room to settle things. But they don't treat their sister that way. And we've seen just even naturally that there is this difference in how they interact. I mean, when, when, the, when the boys were baby boys, they never talked to the baby boys the way they talked to this baby girl. And when this baby girl cries, every older brother comes a-running. And when the little boys cried, not so much. <laughs> but they all, they want to care for her. 
And so our boys know, when it comes to little sister, that, that they may never lay anything other than a brotherly word or hand on their little sister. Right? I mean, that is it. You never lay a word or a hand on this little girl that is not brotherly. Anything else is unacceptable. You treat her differently. Now, there's a flip side to that. If you see anyone else laying a hand or a word on your sister that is not brotherly, then you are free to lay appropriate hands and words on that man. Right? Amen. That's good. That's good. Okay, this is how, now in the, in the church, this is how we are to treat our young ladies. Okay? Our single women. We are to treat them like we would treat sisters. In the Bible, and this is very applicable to, for example, dating relationships, which is very screwed up in our culture, but in the Bible it knows two main relationships between a boy and a girl. In God's family, it's brother and sister and husband and wife. Amen. And until she's your wife, you have to treat her like a sister. Amen. <laughs> We're going to get a lot of those today. <laughs> he's, he's, he's got a little girl and a little boy, so <laughs> he'll be all right. <laughs> and so they're going to be treated very differently. They're going to be loved and cherished and protected There is not in the Bible some middle category where we get to treat young ladies in our church as anything other than a sister until there is a ring on her finger and she's our wife. And anything else is unacceptable. Unacceptable. And also the implications of we're treating our younger women as sisters in the church, what that means is, is that... If there is, let's say, a young gal who's here at Veritas and she starts spending time with a man and he's a man that we don't know, he's not a part of Veritas, but we come to find out that maybe he's not a good man, he's not a godly man. Well, what is the responsibility if the men in Veritas are seeing this young lady as their sister? Well, maybe there's not a father Sometimes there is, but oftentimes there isn't. Maybe there's not a father that's going to sit down with the suitor. Maybe there's not brothers who are going to sit down and say, hey, what do you want with our sisters? So, well, what, is this, what does this text imply? If we're to treat younger women in our church as sisters, that means that if there's a guy and he's spending time with a gal in our church, and we get word that he's not a good guy, not a godly guy, that means one morning at 6 a.m. he hears this. <laughs> And he opens his door, and there's about 10 to 15 men from Veritas Church who say, we understand that you have an interest in our sister. So we need to sit down and have a conversation with you. And then you go and find a nice deserted spot where you can bury a body if necessary. Oh, come on, I'm just kidding. Verse 3, gets more specific. Honor widows. There's a specific category. You got older men, you got older women, younger men, younger women. Here's some general specific etiquette, some rules of how you interact with one another. But now he speaks specifically to honor 
widows. This word honor implies a, an honoring that is in word and deed. It actually includes financial support. We'll see the same word again in verse 17. So this kind of honor is meeting physical needs of widows in your church. It's both and, though. It's not just a kind of honoring that is, that is words and respect and tone, but then there's nothing to back it up. They're just sort of empty words. Oh, yeah, we love you, and, and we respect you, and we're so glad you're here, uh, but no one's mowing her lawn, and no one's making sure that her needs are met or that she's provided for. But it's also not just a blank check. It's also not just, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll meet your needs, and we'll do some things for you, and we'll get you on some kind of a schedule. It's also, no, we're going to honor you with our tone and with our words and in our friendship and relationship to you, and we're going to value you as someone in our church. This is rooted in the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. This is not the spe- a sermon on the specifics of what this might look like to honor your parents and to honor your parents and at different ages and to honor your parents when they're dishonorable and, and there's, there's many things that we could talk about. But Scripture does make it clear that if you have a, a home or you have a church, you have a society where there is not an honoring of mothers and fathers and grandmothers and grandfathers in this way, which is word and deed, that it is not going to go well for you. That's what that command says. Honor your father and mother that it may go well with you. Paul returns to it in Ephesians chapter 6. That you may live long life on the earth. It means if you have a family or you have a church, you have a society where they just kind of cast, cast older people aside, this infuriates God. And it will not go well. That's, that just might be an indictment to us as a culture. Because we do live in a world that, that largely casts the elderly aside. You say, no, you may not do that. Listen to how God speaks. Exodus chapter 22, 22. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. We see in Scripture that God has, I think the best way to describe it, is God has a soft spot. God has a soft spot for those who cannot defend themselves. See this over and over and over again. Different degrees of God's affection and God's love. Well, And you understand that, right? There are kinds of people, maybe, in kinds of situations that your heart goes out to. That you just have a tenderness toward. You have a soft spot for them. Well, God's soft spot is for those who are defenseless and who need others to... That's why God says that I'm a father to the fatherless. I'm like a husband to the widow. I'm a defender of the defenseless. And God makes it clear that He sees widows in this way. So much so that in that text in Exodus chapter 22, He says that you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. And if you do mistreat them, 
and they cry out to me, I will hear their cry. And you may think that the next part of that verse says, and and I will meet their needs. And he certainly will. But, do you remember what God actually says? He says, if you mistreat them, and they cry out to me, I will hear their cry. And here's what I mean by that. I will come find you and kill you. That 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 is what God's Word... This is how seriously He takes this. That you do not take advantage of those who cannot defend themselves. In fact, you stand up and you honor and defend those who cannot defend themselves. And God goes so far as to say in His Word, if you do not do that, and they cry out to me, I'm going to come find you and I'm going to cut you down. I'm going to kill you. God says that. That's motivation. That is motivation to be a Christian, to be a family, to be a church that grabs hold of this truth and carries it out. Look at how Jesus interacted with widows. In Mark chapter 12, you remember His anger toward men who were ripping off widows and taking advantage of them financially? He was furious. Luke chapter 7, remember the widow's son who had died in the city of Nain and, and Jesus It says he had special compassion toward her. Lost all that she had. And what does he do? He raises her son from the dead. Luke 21, he commends the offering of the widow. Everybody's coming in and dropping large amounts of coinage into the offering plate, saying, look at me, and a widow comes, and she just gives a couple pennies, and he says, that, that is what I'm looking for. I may not build a big fancy church building, but that's sacrifice. That's, that's what I'm looking for. And he commends this widow before everyone. And how about John chapter 19? Remember that moving account when Jesus is on the cross and he looks down at his mother, his widowed mother, who is soon to be destitute. And do you remember what his last act toward his mom is? He calls out to his best friend, John. He says, John, come here. I'm not going to be able to take care of my mom anymore. Now, she's your mom. She's your responsibility. Love her. and care. He entrusts his mother to his best friend, John. And then we see in the book of Acts, you see that under the force of Old Testament texts like that and, and the life of Jesus, you see that the early church took very, very seriously the care of widows. Remember in Acts chapter 6? Right, they appointed godly men, a team of godly men just to fulfill the role of making sure that these Grecian widows who they felt like were being neglected and weren't being honored the way they should, that they were cared for. And they appointed these godly men. James goes so far as to say that if your Christianity doesn't involve caring for the defenseless, then you really have no Christianity at all. It says real Christianity is one who cares for widows and orphans. And so if your relationship with Christ is over here, and then over here you're turning your back on the defenseless, and you're not standing up for them, and loving them, and fighting for them, and providing for them, and honoring them, he says, you actually are not a Christian. 
Because that is the fruit of real, genuine faith. Again, he cannot talk more seriously about these issues. In fact, in the early church, they were so good at meeting the needs of widows that they actually end up, and this is what he speaks to here, that they actually end up with with widows who are getting financial aid from the church who actually should not be getting financial aid from the church. They actually don't qualify to receive financial aid from the church because of either one or two reasons he gives. One, some of these widows were not godly. Some of these widows were not godly. And therefore, they were not deserving of this privilege to have the church support them in their old age. And then the other reason he's going to address it is some of them were not destitute. They did have family. They did have resources. They, they, they had family that needed to get off of their butt and needed to care for them and provide for them. And so Paul's going to say, no, 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 no. You take that off of your plate and you put that on Bob's plate. Bob needs to get a job. And he needs to provide for his ailing mother. That is not the church's responsibility. That is Bob's responsibility. And so he's going to walk through and he's going to give these two reasons. Which means that Timothy is about to have some awkward conversations in his church. Which is probably why he gave him the guidelines in those first couple verses. He's going to have to go to some older men and some older women. He's going to have to treat them as fathers and mothers. But he's going to have to go to some of these older women and say, you're not getting a check anymore. Because you're not godly. You're not godly. You're just just a busybody. You're just walking around just with your, your jewelry clanging together so everybody looks at you. You're not serving the church. And so we're going to have to take you off the list. And he's going to have to go to some men, presumably some older men, and say, you're not fulfilling your responsibility to your family. You need to step it up. So here we go. The second part of verse 3. Honor widows who are truly widows. Right? If they're going to be cared for by the church, they need to actually be destitute. There's no family to care for them. There's no other resources. He defines that in verse 5. She who is truly a widow left all alone. This is a real widow. She's left all alone without family and without resources. But he goes on to describe this woman. She must be godly as well. She has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Wow. So Paul says, I want you to support and honor these widows who are in your church. He says, but make sure that these are godly, godly women. Okay, these, are, these are women who are praying for God's people. These are women who are serving God's people. They are godly women. There may be, there may be many things that an older woman who finds herself a widow and finds herself abandoned by family, who maybe finds her health ailing, there are many things that she can still do to serve Christ and His church. 
And Paul says, these are treasures in your church. These are treasures in your church. They are the women who, who may not have the, the mental capacity they once had even, who may not have the physical capacity they once had, but they're sitting on their beds and they are bowing their heads and they are praying for God's people. He says those are absolute treasures in your church. They are worthy of your honor and respect. And if no one else is caring for them, church, you rise up and you make sure you meet her needs and you care for her because she is one of God's great gifts to your household of faith. This is a godly woman. That at the end of her life, she sits on her beds and she knows your names and she knows your needs and she is praying to God on your behalf. There is no greater work that a Christian can do. One author said, prayer does not prepare me for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. And that is dead on. There's nothing more loving that you can do, nothing more productive that you can do than to go to God in prayer on behalf of those you love. And so there are some some destitute widows, he says, who don't have family to care for them, and they're godly widows, and you need to make sure that you meet their needs. But then he says there's also another category that get taken off of the list, and this is the gal who is self-indulgent. And he says, this old woman is dead even while she lives. Wow. They're not all sweet little old ladies. They're not. Honorable till proven dishonorable, and some are proven dishonorable. They're self-indulgent. Isn't that the opposite of what he just described? They're not serving. They're not praying. They're not loving. They're just looking for everybody to look at them. Well, I've, now I've done my duty. I raised my family. Now it's retirement. Now it's time that you serve me. I'm going to Florida. Time for you to... Florida's not bad. Time for you to take care of me. I'm done serving. Time for you to serve me and give me the respect that I deserve and the honor that I deserve and the money that I deserve and the appreciation that I deserve. And it's all me, me, me. It's self-indulgent. And Paul goes as far as to say that that woman is as good as dead. She is dead even though she is alive. And there are people like that. You're alive and you're walking around, but you might as well be dead. You're no good to anyone. You're just no good to anyone. You could die and no one on planet Earth would be bowed off because of it. That's what he says. There are some who are dead while they are still alive. And this is the temptation. The temptation, as we, I can already see that in my life as I get older, to begin to think that I'm entitled, that I deserve certain things. 
And that can get to the point where there is this, for example, this retirement where now I experience the good life and I've paid my dues and now it's all about me. When it is never, ever all about me. Do you think it's all about others for a season and then God gives you 20 years and it's back to all about God in heaven? It is always all about God. It is never about us. It is never about people serving us. It is never about us demanding that, calling for honor, calling for respect. It is being honorable and being respectable and being loving and being kind. This is what God expects of us. And if we don't do that, old or young, you are as good as dead. Now, I'm getting amped about that because Paul is. I mean, he's saying some things strong. Very strong. So in summary of that, widows who qualify to be supported by the church are those women who are godly and destitute. They are godly women, no family, no resources. They are qualified to be supported by a church, which begs the question that he answers. What about those widows who do not qualify? What about those widows who are godly, maybe? But they have a family. Maybe the family isn't caring for them. But they do have a family. And so Paul speaks out to that question in verse 4 and verse 8. Verse 4. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first. There it is. Let them first. Learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. It is the primary responsibility, he's saying. If you've got older men, older women, you have a widow in your church, godly woman, she's destitute, no family, no resources. Well, let's say you have one who does have family. It is the primary responsibility of her children and her grandchildren to honor her. To honor her in word and in deed. What that means is this. We live in a culture, right? We live in a culture that is not big on honoring just the elderly in general. We live in a culture that relies on institutions and programs outside the family so that we can actually get the old people out of our homes and out of our lives and push it off onto other people and to abdicate our responsibilities. And just generally speaking... This is sort of how we behave as a culture. We don't honor those who are older among us. I mean, we give them, we give them a, a, a blue parking spot in front of hometown buffet. It is about as far as we go. So we'll give you a blue sticker so you can park closer. Because I don't have to stop in the parking lot while you cross. We'll just put you by the front door so we can wheel you in. But that's about it. We don't honor and revere and and respect. So what Paul is saying is that may be happening in the world, but that does not happen in the family. 
the children and the grandchildren, they better be honoring and loving this woman who would otherwise be destitute and unprovided for. So primarily and practically, I should say, this means that it is the responsibility of children and grandchildren to provide for their parents and grandparents. To honor and care for them. There will come a day. My mom is a widow. But you know, she's young and spry and firing on all cylinders. There will come a day though where she's going to be old and feeble. And I cannot, I cannot just pass her on. I don't want to, but I can't. I'm not allowed to. She is my responsibility. One day, Kristen is going to be old and feeble. It's hard to imagine, but one day she will be old and feeble. And my boys are going to honor and care for that's why that's why that's why I had so many boys. Just increase the odds here. Figure three of them could drop the ball, and one of them will still rise to the challenge. They are going to, right? Kristen, she is set. She is set. As long as there is breath in my lungs, I'm going to take care of her, and I'm going to provide for her. And as soon as I kick the bucket, okay, my boys are going to step in line. And they are going to make sure that she is provided and cared for, has food, has shelter, has love, until she breathes her last. And my grandkids are going to do the same thing for my daughter-in-laws. And on and on and on. This is, this is God's way. Amen. What happens is there comes a day, right? I mean, you think there comes a day when the roles are reversed. I'm not talking about the creepy book where the guy's like holding his mom at the end. That book is so creepy. But there's a book about it. Don't read that book. It's so creepy. But there, there is some of you know what I'm talking about. Forever I'll love you. Or I'm, it's just creepy. Don't read it. I'm sorry. But there is a time where the roles will become reversed. There will come a point where, where my mom and where Kristen, where they will not be able anymore. They will not be able to care for themselves. Does that sound familiar? I mean, I've watched, I've watched Kristen now with these five little ones. And what is she doing? She is caring for them. She is meeting their needs. But they're not worried about their needs being met. My sons don't come home and say, Dad, are we going to eat dinner again tonight? <laughs> it's like, what are we eating for dinner? And is there going to be Green stuff. <laughs> There's no worried about... They don't, they don't come home from school and say, oh, do, are we, do we still get to stay here tonight? Or we just laugh like, oh, it's so ridiculous. Nah, we're Americans. <laughs> 21st century, I mean, come on. Of course you're going to be here tonight. You stop paying your mortgage, it would take them three years to kick you out. <laughs> I mean, you're set. There's no problem. No, you got welfare. No, or things are going to be just fine. As long as we have taxpayers, we're good. 
I mean, there's no worries like that. They have no worries. It should be the same for a mother who is a widow and old and destitute. There should be no worries of where her meals are going to come from. Okay? It should be her family. And if it's not the family, plan B, according to Paul, is the church. But it's taken care of. And you see how he words it? You're repaying your mom. Those are his words. It's repayment. Repayment for... You know, Kristen has not... She has not... I'm not joking. She has not had a full night's sleep in over nine years. She has not had a full night's sleep in over nine years. She labors for these kids. She works hard for these kids. She agonizes over these kids. The pain that comes from parents, you know, is the pain that comes from raising children. The pain in their sin. The pain in their rebellion. The pain when they walk away from the Lord. There is nothing. There is nothing that cuts a parent more deeply. There is nothing more painful for a parent. And Paul says that those little boys and those little girls, they're going to grow up and they're going to repay you, mom and dad, for you meeting all of their needs and providing for them. Okay, as an act of love and thankfulness and gratitude, this is how it works in the church, they are going to love you and provide it for your needs, just like you did for them. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. There is a family mandate here. When members of a family are in need, other members of the family should meet that need. What does Paul go so far as to say in verse 8? But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith, and he is worse than an unbeliever. He says, you're not not taking care of your mom? Dad's gone? You're not taking care of your mom? He says, you may not be a Christian, you better, better make your calling and election sure. You better examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. And I don't see how you can love Jesus and not do this. So if this is the kind of life you're living where you're not providing the needs of your own family, you have denied the faith. Maybe on the outside you haven't, but he says, let me give you a word on your heart right now. He says, you've denied the faith. You've denied Jesus. You don't love Him. You don't believe the gospel. Because if you did, this would be the fruit. You would provide for your family. It is not, he says, it is not primarily the church's responsibility, and it is certainly not the government's responsibility. Now, we, have, we have good, I'm not just, this isn't some political, there are good things, I, I just don't read into that. But God's plan A is the family, God's plan B is the church. And and government-managed, citizen-funded programs, they don't even make God's list. I'm not saying they're bad. But they don't make God's list. He says, family, this is on you. No family, church, this is on you. And this is how my people, God says, will be honored and cared for. This is God's way and God's plan. Now, this is how screwed up this is today. Anyone who does not provide for the needs of his immediate family is denied the faith and worse than an unbeliever. That we have an epidemic today, right? 
Not only of, of men who are not caring for their parents and grandparents in their old age, but men who are not caring for their wives and their children. I mean, Paul doesn't even go there. It's, just, it's another level of despicable. I mean, it's one thing to neglect your, your widowed mother in her old age. But now God gives men a wife, gives, God, gives men children. And what is rampant in our culture today? Fatherless children. Children without a dad. You can go to schools in Sacramento where 90% of the children do not have a father at home. 90%. God is saying, defend them. I'm a defender of the defenseless. I'm a father of the fatherless. What is happening is responsibilities are getting abdicated. We're to provide men. We're to provide for the needs of our family. That is, is our job. That is our role. And we do not get to pass that off. And so we have a culture where they're, just not even, they're not even there. We have whole new categories of who the defenseless are in our culture today that they didn't have as rampantly then. Like the unborn. Who cannot defend themselves. Or single mothers who have not been abandoned by their spouse, or I should say, who have not ended up in their situation because their spouse died, but perhaps even more painful because their spouse abandoned them and just left them and left 90% of kids without a father going to bed tonight with no dad in the home. What's going on? We're not obeying God's word. We're passing the buck. We're abdicating our responsibility, not providing for the needs of our family. Now we've got, I'll push a real button, I think. And we have a Christian version of that. A Christian version of that is husbands and fathers who do not provide for their family and send their wives to go out and provide for their family. And I'll just push the stroller around the park all day and abdicate my responsibility. She can go bear my curse. That's what that man is doing. From Genesis chapter 3, the man is cursed in his work. It's not going to come easy. It's not just go out to the garden and, oh, tomatoes and fruit and vegetables. Here you go, family. No, thorns and thistles by the sweat of your brow. It's going to be hard work to provide for your family. And so there are men today who abdicate their responsibility by saying, oh, you know, you're better. You're smarter. you got more degrees. I'm so good with the kids. You go out and do it. And that is disobeying God. That's not managing things. That is disobeying God. And it is reversing roles. It is abdicating responsibility. And it's saying, no, I'm not going to provide for the needs of my family. I'll just pass it on. Now, it looks a little better, right? And it's not as extreme. And we're more comfortable with that. And it's common. And so it's okay. But God isn't winking at it. The family. The family. Verse 9 and 10. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. These are some women. Who are these? There's a new category here of widows in verses 9 through 10. 
They, they weren't denying help to widows of any age, but we do know that there was a, a by the end of the second century, church history, we can look and identify that there was in the church a special order of older widows who were registered, Tertullian says, who were enlisted on a list of widows who were qualified by their stage of life, not only to be helped by the church, but also to serve the church. So these widows that he's talking about were a very special class of widows who were older, most like over 60, beyond childbearing age, not likely to, to have another family, and who would desire to and take a pledge even over the rest of my days, you know, I've had my family, I've raised my family, she's done a good job, and now she devotes herself to Christ and His church. Okay, Polycarp in the early 2nd century identifies these women. Tertullian in the early 3rd century identifies these women. It says they're visiting the sick. They're praying. They're drawing alongside young wives and moms and, and training them how to love their husbands and love their children. They're evangelizing the young pagan women in their communities. This is an amazing crew of these younger widows. He describes them, which, by the way, this is a job description for every woman. One day when you're old, ladies, one day when you're old, you're nearing the end of this life. Now, you want to look back on your life, and you want others to look back on your life and say, this is the kind of life this woman lived. She's a one-man woman. That sound familiar? Remember qualification for an elder? Same word structure here. He must be a one-woman man. Well, they, these widows, they were a one-man woman. A reputation for good works. Brought up children. Hospitable. Served the church. Cared for the afflicted. Good wives. Good mommies good servants to their church family. That's who they were. But then you see this particular class of widows, he said they needed to be over 60. They need to be over 60. Evidently, these widows made a pledge that now committed to Christ and His church. And there were other younger widows that he speaks to here in verse 11. There were younger widows who also wanted to be enrolled, who wanted to become nuns, basically, and wanted to be enrolled on this list. And here's what he says, verse 11. Here's what Paul says to young nuns, by the way. But refuse to enroll younger widows. And he gives two reasons. Number one, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Number two, besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. He says, you're going to have a young women. Less today than then. There were reasons why you had a lot of younger women who were, were, they were widowed at a young age. He says, you're going to have women, and they're going to be grieving and mourning the loss of their husband. And the idea of devoting themselves full service to Christ and His church is going to be very attractive to them and appealing. Especially when they're going through the pain of losing their husband. Okay, they're, going to, they're going to have thoughts like, I could, never, I could never love a man like this again. 
Right, that they're going to have a, a Nicholas Sparks notion of, of life. And he was my one true love, and, and there will never be another. Um, or, or just give up on, on, I guess it's just not meant to be for me to have family or to have children. And so in that stage, the, the idea of being put on this list with these other widows and just all out serving Christ in His church is going to be very appealing. And Paul says these women are naive for two reasons. And the first reason he gives is that her passions are likely to change. She is going to be wholeheartedly committed to Christ in His church until one day when she sees Him Worshipping on a Sunday. And now she's going to be wholeheartedly committed to finding out what his name is. And how tall he is. Her passions are likely to change. But I have this conversation with Kristen. She hates this conversation. She hates this conversation. But I've told her if something should happen to me. You know, I live such a risky life. It's very possible. You know, studying for my sermon in my office, something terrible could happen. A power pole could fall on me. Who knows? But I've told her, hey, listen, if... if," I said, Chris, this is where I'm coming from. If something should happen to me. I've actually prayed this, which is weird. I know. You know, the if prayer. But if something should happen to me and I die, and here you are, young, beautiful woman with these beautiful children, my prayer is that another man who is godly would come and be your husband and raise my boys and this sweet little girl. That would be my heart. Not that she would become a nun. Not that she would struggle. I hope she'd mourn for a bit. (laughs) Give her like a year or something cry a bit, you know, a lot, a lot, (laughs) but that she would get to a point with your help, that she would get to a point with your help and with her church's help, where another godly man, someone's going to take me out, my wife's beautiful, someone's going to like take me out now, I'm just thinking about that, someone's going to come along, okay, and they're going to be her husband, and they're going to be a father to my children, if God were to take me home early. That would be my prayer. And Paul is advising Timothy with these younger women. He says, just hold on, just get them through, let them grieve, let them mourn. I know how they feel right now. Don't put them on this list. Just give it time. Give it time. He says, the other thing that could happen is that their freedom, her freedom is likely to become a stumbling block. You actually give this young woman with a lot of life ahead of her and you put her in this position where you're supporting her as the church and, and she has a responsibility to love and serve the church, it's very possible as a, a younger, immature woman that that freedom is going to become a stumbling block and she's just going to become a busybody and a gossip. And, and it, Don't go there. And then he gives an alternative, verse 14. So what do you do with these younger widows? So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. Every woman... Young woman, if you're not married, if you don't have children, this is what you want. It is not just, marriage is good. It is not just good for a man to marry. It is not just good, not good that a man is alone. 
Right? Genesis chapter 2 is also good. Not good for a woman to be alone. This is a good thing. Desire this. She should what? She should marry and have children. That is a good, wonderful, God-honoring thing. Do not think that that is somehow second-rate. There is nothing better that a woman can do with her life, should God provide it, than to love her husband and to love her children and to be a helper suitable. There's nothing more glorious that she could do with her life. And that's Paul's admonition. It's his ideal situation. This is what happens. She gets married and she has children. You know, by the way, this is the primary way God grows His church. There's just no getting away around that. The primary way that God grows and builds His church is through the children of believers. Yes, we evangelize outside the church, but God is growing families within the church. And God has been doing that since creation. Loving families. Saving families sometimes. Saving the children of believers. He is in the habit of doing that. What a wonderful ministry. You know, see, we can, we can fall into the trap of thinking that, yeah, my family is just kind of this thing, but then the real service is outside of the family. And that is backwards. So we can kind of promote this notion that says, okay, yeah, get your family squared away, and then how are you going to serve in the church? You are serving the church. You're serving the church. Ladies specifically, by loving your husband and loving your children, you are serving the church. You are building the church. There's this idea where I've got to be out Monday night and Tuesday night and Wednesday night, and I've got to run this ministry, and I've got to volunteer in this way, and I've got to serve over here, and I've got to do that. And it's very tempting because... You get a lot more respect for that. And you get a lot more compliments for that and a lot less for the work that you do behind the scenes 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. But that is good, noble, God-honoring work. My wife has five little disciples that she is evangelizing every single day. That she's telling about Jesus every single day. That she's pouring into every single day. The home is where the gospel is first internalized and then missioned out from the home. But it starts there. These are the biblical priorities that Paul's laying out. And then he gives a summary as all in verse 16 of what he has said. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Family first, church second, honored and cared for. I'm going to pray. We'll take communion together as a family. And if you're visiting with us today, there's some instructions in your bulletin about how we carry out communion. If you read that, you might find it helpful. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for gathering us together today so that you would be glorified in our praising of you. God, we thank you for leaving nothing to chance in our lives. We thank you that you reside in heaven and do all that you please. We thank you that we make our plans, but you direct our steps. 
Thank you that you command the lightning where to strike. Thank you that you set up kings and take them down, that you direct the hearts of kings as a river in your hands. Thank you that you know the number of hairs on our head right now as we sit here. Thank you that you hold everything together in the palm of your hand. And thank you that in that sense, nothing will happen that is apart from your good and gracious will. We thank you that you reign supreme. You are over all, in all, and through all. And we thank you for making us, while the most significant of your creation, still compared to you so utterly insignificant. It is not what is good in us, but it is what is good in you. We thank you for saving us and for redeeming us and for reconciling us as undeserving sinners to you. God, and many of us here today as believers, we would plead with you now. We would plead with you. Lord, make us more like Jesus. Conform us to the image of your Son. May we put off sin and put on righteousness. May we be the most selfless of people. May we abandon our self-exaltation and our self-preservation and live lives wholly devoted to You and for Your glory. May we not worry so much about us, God, because You have promised already to supply all of our needs according to Your great riches in Jesus Christ. So we have nothing to be anxious about, nothing to worry about. We pray that we would live for you and live for others. That you would be exalted and lifted up. We pray this in the mighty name of your Son, Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.